2: You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about.
0: The aggressive advocates who are looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this
1: case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful.
2: This is KCBS
1: In-Depth.
2: When most of us think about the oscars what comes to mind probably movie stars marching down the red carpet glittering outfits shiny trophies lights flashing careers getting made hopes getting dashed but you dig a little bit beneath the surface of all that hollywood glitz and glamour and today's guest says you'll quickly find something else on that award stage too a battleground Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. With the 95th Academy Awards just a week away, we're going to be reflecting on some of the defining moments in Oscars history. And those moments were not always about who won or lost. In fact, the stories that have come out of this awards ceremony over the decades mark out some of the most important battles within the film industry itself. From the push to unionize, to the Red Scare and blacklists, to more recently, the Oscars So White hashtag and the slap. Our tour guide through this Hollywood history is Michael Shulman, a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of the new book, Oscar Wars A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. Michael Shulman, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, of course, Oscars night is a night of high drama. You know, for a lot of filmmakers, this is the culmination of a lifetime of work, uh, of hopes, of dreams. And it's all up there on a stage that's going to be watched by millions of people all around the world. But when you look at that stage, you see even bigger dramas playing out. Uh, Dramas about power and who gets to wield that power in Hollywood. Uh, In recent years, the Oscar wars have centered on issues of race, gender, and representation. Uh, But as we hinted at earlier, there's been a lot of other battles too. So uh, to get us started... Help us see a little bit of what you're seeing in the Oscars. What are these Oscar wars that have been raging over these past many decades?
1: Right. Well, on one level, the Oscars are a kind of game. Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? Um, who's going to get the most trophies in one night? And they're fun to follow along on that level. There's the horse race. And um, and we all do that. Who's up? Who's down? Um, but what I really wanted to get at with this book was the way that The Oscars and, in particular, certain Oscar years act as a kind of prism that help us understand changes and and shifts in popular culture and in the movie industry. Um, And so, what I did in the book was just choose about a dozen moments or years or even one category that told some larger story. Like, for instance, one of them is about the Best Picture race of 1976. It was an incredible year for that category. The nominees were. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Nashville, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, and Jaws. So like one of those things does not belong, right? (laughs) You have these four auteurist masterpieces of the new Hollywood, these kind of anti-authoritarian, rambunctious movies. And then you have the first modern summer blockbuster by this 20-something kid named Spielberg. And on Oscar night that year, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest... Um, won all the major awards. It really captured the zeitgeist of the Watergate era, but it was Jaws that kind of pointed the way forward for the industry and kind of pointed toward, you know, the Hollywood of the 80s, which was a lot of big money sequels and a lot of Spielberg. So in a way, if you if you look back and analyze just those five movies, how they were made, what happened when they all collided, and then what hap- what effect that had, on uh, on those filmmakers and on the industry, it it, it shows you a, a kind of sea change in um in in the culture and in the movies. Yeah, so the Oscar night ceremony really are this uh, recurring snapshot
2: of these important moments in uh, Hollywood history and drawing together those many snapshots tell, uh, the story of uh, Hollywood history and the broader shifts that have been, uh, changing our, our, our filmmaking and, um, what's driving that filmmaking. And to give a little bit more background, I guess, on where you're coming from in all this, you, uh, I, my sense is are quite a, a, an Oscars fan. So this is not, uh, any sort of a tut tut Oscars book. Uh, you, you, you yourself are an admirer who, uh, I, I believe for some time staged, uh, dramatic readings of o- Oscars acceptance speeches?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I have been watching the Oscars since I was a kid, but I do maintain a very healthy irreverence toward them. I mean, <laughs> I think the Oscars are, you know, culturally revealing, but also completely ridiculous and absurd. And I love that about them, too. And it's true. Uh, uh, about 12 years ago, uh, my friend Rachel Shukert and I started a live show in New York called um, You Like Me, an evening of classic acceptance speeches. And we would have... Um, Actors and comedians and performance artists ge- reinterpret uh, famous acceptance speeches verbatim. So like someone would play Sally Field giving that you like me speech or, you know, someone would play uh, Roberto Benigni climbing over the chairs or Susan Lucci finding, <laughs> finally winning her Daytime Emmy Award. And the idea is to kind of look at these speeches almost as like a dramatic text.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I- that sounds like a ton of fun. And yeah, leaning into the absurdity of it all, uh, I, I, I think is uh, where the magic is and um, where some of these uh, moments that you reflect in your book where the magic there is uh, as well. Real quick for anybody just joining us. This is KCBS in depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Getting ready for Oscars night with a conversation about some of the biggest moments that have defined the awards ceremony and the film industry. Joining us for that conversation, speaking with Michael Shulman, author of the new book, Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat and Tears. So let's actually go back to the beginning of the Oscars and... How the Academy Award, uh, the uh, excuse me, the Academy itself came about. Uh, so this is an institution that has its roots all the way back in the 1920s, and one of the big concerns for the founders of the Academy uh, of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences uh, is the push to unionize among actors and other uh, filmmakers. Why why was the Academy
1: the answer to that push? So back in the 20s, Hollywood was not a union town. The craftspeople who worked on movies had a union, but the actors, writers, and directors did not. And in the 20s, there were signs that that might change. Actors' equity, which uh, handled stage actors like Broadway, people in the East, started making inroads in, in Hollywood. And this was a, a, a big problem for people like Louis B. Mayer, who was the head of MGM. You know, he kind of wanted... Un, uh, undiluted access to his uh, his workers, and um, so the academy was formed in nineteen twenty seven by about thirty by thirty six founding members who were a cross section of powerful people in silent era Hollywood, and um, their their rhetoric at the time was very utopian. They said they wanted to be the, a League of Nations for Hollywood, um, and they wanted to create harmony in the industry. Um, so that sounds really great. Um, But if you look one layer underneath it, you know, the way they were trying to create harmony was, for instance, to mediate labor disputes. If someone uh, got fired from a movie and said they weren't paid properly or uh, negotiating contracts with, you know, for, uh, uh, for, for the writer, for screenwriters, for instance. And the rank and file of Hollywood felt, and not wrongly, that the Academy was basically... A company union. It was a way for the producers and executives to kind of control uh, all these labor disputes. And um, and so it it, it kind of worked like it, for for about 5 years the presence of the academy held off uh, unionization. And then in in the 30s during the depression, of course there was this big labor movement throughout the country and part of that created the screen actors guild, the screen writers guild, eventually the screen directors guild. And, you know, the Oscar Wars of the 30s were vicious. These guilds saw the Academy as public enemy number one. They would uh, direct their members to resign from the Academy en masse. And um, they also boycotted the ceremony um, at certain points to, to to make their point. And um, it wasn't until the end of the 30s, when the Academy was about 10 years old, that President of the Academy at the time, the director Frank Capra, decided, well, you know, okay, if everyone hates us because we're doing these, you know, we're we're meddling in economic matters, we're just not going to do those things. So the Academy eventually shed uh, all sort of labor uh, responsibilities, and what they kept was the Academy Awards, which was the only thing they did that everyone in Hollywood seemed to like. It's so interesting. So, yeah, so when this
2: institution was founded, they didn't even have an awards ceremony in mind. Now it's the main thing that this uh, institution is known for. I guess I'm also kind of curious it, it's not obvious that this little awards ceremony that they kicked off in 1929 would become such a focal point for the industry and really, in some ways, the world. It, it's hard to think of. Uh, another award that is more prestigious than getting an Oscar. Maybe w- if we talk about getting a gold medal or a silver medal at the Olympics, or maybe uh, getting uh, a Pulitzer, maybe maybe we're at, at about the level then. But really, it's one of the most prestigious awards in the whole world. Uh, how did that come to be?
1: Well, the, so the, when the Academy started, they had this long list of ideas, and one of them was Awards of merit. Um, but it took them two years to actually get around to awarding it. The first uh, ceremony was in 1929. and It was just a banquet that, you know, people attended who were in the academy. They had various speeches and academy business. And at the end, they handed out the awards in around 15 minutes. But then it evolved. I mean, I think as soon as there was a, a, an award to win, people in Hollywood wanted to win it. And, you know, if you know anyone who's in an artistic profession. There's a lot of insecurity and a lot of ego and people need sort of reassurance that they're doing something right. So I think it served a certain function in Hollywood, which is to help define power, who is on top, who had prestige, um, who was talented, who was um, bankable. And um, and it grew and grew. Um, eventually in the 50s, it started being televised and that is how it became a big, you know, ceremony, you know televised TV show that that uh, millions of people would watch. Um, you know, we have a lot of ancillary awards now that lead up to the Oscars. You know, the the SAG Awards, the BAFTAs, the Golden Globes, the, this and that. Um, but those are always; th- those are all kind of like. A, on the the tail of, of 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 the Oscars, and they they kind of grew off of the Oscars like you know like barnacles <laughs> attached to the hull of the ship, and we now have award season. Yeah. But you know, for many many decades, the Oscars were essentially it. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to be d- digging into that
2: history uh, just a little bit more, real quick. Speaking with Michael Schulman, staff writer at the New Yorker, author of the new book *Oscar Wars: A History of Hollywood in Gold Sweat*. And tears. So let's dig into some of those pivotal Hollywood moments uh, right now. And uh, going back to some more recent history, actually, probably one of the most bruising fights of all is the 1999 battle for best picture between Shakespeare in Love and Saving Private Ryan. Uh, why is that
1: remembered as one of the ugliest Oscar fights of all time? Well, the short answer is Harvey Weinstein. Mm. Harvey Weinstein was... uh, What he used to be notorious for is being a very aggressive Oscar campaigner. Um, He's obviously notorious for something else now, rightfully so. But throughout the 90s, uh, when he and his brother Bob were in charge of Miramax, um, they saw themselves as these underdogs, the indie kids from New York, and they were coming out with these very boundary-pushing movies like Pulp Fiction and, you know the crying game and um, and part of how they operated was to try really hard to campaign for Oscars in a way that people hadn't really done um, and it, it reached its apotheosis in 1999 when um, Miramax had Shakespeare in love and DreamWorks had um, Steven Spielberg's big war movie, Saving Private Ryan, which had come out earlier and was presumed essentially to be the best picture frontrunner. Everyone kind of thought it had it in the bag until Shakespeare and Love came along. And Weinstein just left no stone unturned. He campaigned every single place he could. Um, but what really made it ugly was that DreamWorks got word through the grapevine that Weinstein was negative campaigning against Saving Private Ryan, essentially telling journalists to write that it was only good for the first 25 minutes, the famous storming of the beach in Normandy scene. And after that, it kind of became a standard World War II movie. Um, So once DreamWorks heard that, that's really when all hell broke loose because they were infuriated. Uh, They started, you know, the press started writing about all these uh, campaign tactics that Weinstein was supposedly using. Um... Weinstein, of course, denied, denied, denied that he was, um, you know, trashing, saving Private Ryan. He said, oh, I, I love the movie. I told Hillary Clinton she should go see it. Yada, yada, yada. I actually, in my book research, found, uh, you know, more than one journalist who heard this uh, slam directly from him, including the one who told it to, to DreamWorks. So, um, but people on the Miramax staff didn't necessarily know everything that Weinstein was doing Uh, obviously on a lot of levels, but this was one of them. And so they felt that DreamWorks was smearing them by claiming that they were playing dirty. And so by the time we got to Oscar night, there was so much resentment between these two studios. And then when Shakespeare in Love unexpectedly won Best Picture, it just hit everyone in the face like a frying pan. And um, the anger toward Weinstein erupted Uh, But then everyone in Hollywood decided they needed to copy his playbook and do what he had done, but better so that he couldn't come and steal their Oscars anymore. (laughs) And that's how we got the modern campaign ecosystem that, uh, you know, takes up millions of dollars and months of people's time. For your consideration. So they were so angry about it, they decided to do it themselves as well.
2: Uh, I guess that's how a lot of this uh, shakes out in in a lot of different cases. Let's uh, get to even more recent history. Uh, Another thread that runs throughout your book is the question of representation and who gets to be in films, whose work ends up getting honored uh, for their work in films. And a lot of these questions really came to a head in 2016 uh, when the Oscars So White hashtag really started catching steam uh, after the second year in a row that um, all of the awards for uh, actors were, uh, excuse me, all of the nominations for actors were for white actors. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the uh, Oscars So White hashtag and how that ended up playing out over the Oscar campaign of that year.
1: The Oscars So White hashtag started in 2015. Uh, An activist named April Rain tweeted, Uh, hashtag Oscars so white, they asked to touch my hair. Um, And then, you know, that, that got some attention. But then when it happened a second year in a row in 2016, and once again, there were all 20 white acting nominees, uh, the hashtag went viral and um, the Academy responded. um, The Academy tends not to be proactive about change and responding to critics, but, um, At the time, uh, its president was uh, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who was uh, the first black president of the Academy. Um, And uh, it had its first CEO, Don Hudson, and both of them felt like it was time for change. And so the Academy had an emergency meeting of the Board of Governors and came out with this plan basically to diversify the membership. You You can't control what people vote for, but you can change who's doing the voting. And for many years... The Academy had been very, very uh, stingy with new people coming in. Basically, if someone died or retired, they would replace those people, but they were they didn't expand the membership. So what they decided to do was bring in a lot more people and um, have them be more uh, diverse racially, uh, younger people, more women, more international members. Um, and it was really quite, um, and, and it, it, it took them, you know, a number of years to, to, to really make a, a, a demographic shift so that the membership of the academy uh, better reflected the you know the diversity of the industry and the population at the same time they said that they would make certain members who had been out of the industry for a while non-voting uh, th- they called it emeritus status <laughs> which is kind of this euphemism mm-hmm. for you know you are a no longer vote. yeah no longer relevant no longer active and so you don't get to vote. And um, this only affected a tiny number of people in the end, but it just hit on the insecurity of people in Hollywood thinking, oh my God, am I over the hill? Am I, am I obsolete? Am I Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard all of a sudden? Uh, why is the Academy blaming me and essentially calling me racist? You know. Th- so there was just this pushback and outcry that wound up being even louder than the original criticism, the Oscar So White criticism, and it's funny that was the same year as the uh, Clinton versus Trump uh, presidential race, and I found that there were a lot of interesting parallels, mm. just in the in the in the sense that people were complaining about uh, political correctness versus merit, or you know, demographic change. Was these were all issues that were being debated throughout the country in a very ugly way, and.
2: So, bouncing off what you just said a moment ago, that this was uh, the Oscars So White hashtag presented a moment of racial reckoning for Hollywood, I wonder how much of an actual impact That moment has had on the industry itself in terms of, you know, who's actually cast, who's able to get work, uh, who is making top billing, the sorts of things that folks within the industry would actually care about, because you also write about uh, a number of uh, Oscar winners, the um, uh, black Oscar winners who have won it over the year who for a moment, you know, thinking about Sidney Poitier uh, or thinking uh, about Halle Berry, who at the moment that they won it, it felt like a very vindicating moment, a very important experience. And then years later, when they saw that um, others had not followed in their footsteps, it was kind of a a, a realization that less had changed than they thought perhaps had. So when it comes to Oscar,
1: so white, how much has changed? Well, the the makeup of the academy has certainly changed quite a lot. Um, one kind of underappreciated aspect of the change has been how global the academy has become. I think you start to see that reflected in wins like um, *Parasite* a few years ago. Uh, so the Oscars are less hemmed in by the geographical uh, confines of of Hollywood as a place. But, you know, as many people said at the time with Oscar So White, the Academy is sort of at the end of the filmmaking process. Very few films actually make it into the awards race, and those films have to be made first. So isn't the real question, who's greenlighting films, who's who's give, being given an opportunity, who's being cast, etc.? cetera? Um, you know, the Academy has tried to uh, even... Uh, uh, affect those parts of the process. They've said they, they released some guidelines a few years ago for who's eligible for best picture. You have to have a certain certain element of diversity in front of or behind the camera. Um, I think what the Oscar So White uh, uproar really did, besides the, the um, very practical change of, of, of changing the makeup of the Academy, was just call attention to, to this imbalance in Hollywood. Hmm. Not just what gets made, but what gets valued, you know? What gets embraced and held up? And what was amazing to me is that at the end of this year, um, you know, it started 2016. By 2017, the winner was Moonlight, um, which not only won, but won in a crazy way. If you remember the the envelope mix up with Moonlight and La La Land. But just the idea that Moonlight would win, it, it's so unlike any other... Best Picture winner, and I think it helped people reimagine what a Best Picture means. You know, it may not be some gigantic spectacle or nostalgic family drama or war drama. You know, and, it, it, and Moonlight was a, a groundbreaker on a number of levels. You know, it was the the first Best Picture winner that had an explicitly queer storyline, if you don't count Midnight Cowboy in 1970. It was the first, I think, with an all-black uh, cast, and. Um, and, it, you know, it told us a story about America that was very different than had been told in the Best Picture winner before. And I think that was a really palpable, meaningful win. Um, so, yeah, that's that's part of why I, the journey I wanted to trace and just looking at that entire year. Yeah. Speaking once again with Michael Schulman, author of the new book, Oscar Wars. Um, so
2: we only have a couple of minutes left and I want to make sure that we save some time for uh, very recent history Curious for your take on the slap that occurred last year, of course, uh, that was uh, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock during the awards ceremony to the shock uh, and dismay of many folks. I know that you were in the audience watching that. Uh, I wonder, uh, there's been so many takes on the significance of that moment, uh, so many different kind of interpretations of what was behind it. Do you see a version of the Oscar Wars playing out on that stage? I'm, I'm very curious for what you make of that moment and the conversation that's come out of it.
1: Well, I was in the balcony and I saw it happen live, heard it happen. Uh, I'm very nearsighted, so I couldn't really see that well, but I could hear <laughs> Will Smith screaming, "Get my wife's name out your her, her mouth!" And um, what was in, like for me, I sort of didn't have a take in that moment. I knew, you know, Twitter was obviously blowing up and debating what it all meant. But if you were there, it kind of felt like if you were in a bar and a and a brawl breaks out, you know, like that. That the the, the air changes. There's there's this mm. feeling of danger and and unpredictability. And I ended the night at the Vanity Fair party. Uh, I was going home around twelve thirty a.m. and decided to check out the dance floor one last time. And I was on the dance floor. I felt something near me. I spun around and I saw Will Smith dancing with his Oscar with a huge smile on his face. Um, the DJ put on getting, getting jiggy with it. And I just watched this man who had just like, just sort of ruined his his public image and also won an Oscar at the same time. You know, just ha- seeming like he was having a great, uh, you know, the time of his life. It was a very dark, surreal image. And I think, um, you know, it, it immediately helped me f- come up with a new ending for my book but um, but to me it was an an image that was unsettling it's it's like it said so much to me about sort of the bubble that celebrities are in and the bubble of Hollywood that um, you can you can basically commit an act of violence um, live on TV in front of millions and millions of people and yet there's something about that gold statuette that just makes you feel like you're on top of the world yeah (laughs) <laughs> this is, must have been a very surreal moment in that bar at that moment. Yeah. It's like a disconnection from reality.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The the Oscars bubble, the Hollywood bubble right there. Okay. Well, there's one more question that I want to put to you. Um, of course, we do have the Oscars coming up next week. We have the front running films like Everything Everywhere All at Once. We are also looking to see how uh, Top Gun does, how Avatar does. But rather than ending things out on a typical what are your top picks sort of question, I'm more curious, what is your sense of the Oscar ver- the version of the Oscar wars that we're going to see play out next week? Uh, I guess another way to ask that is when somebody writes the book on this period in the Oscars history, what is the inside Hollywood fight that they're going to remember this era for?
1: Well, I, it's a very uncertain time in Hollywood. Um a lot of movies are not doing well. The only thing that people seem to be going out to theaters to see are these big franchise movies like Avatar and uh, Top Gun and the Marvel movies. Meanwhile, um, streaming has just upended the business, and it's not clear to people who make movies how to make money off of them. Mm. Um, you know, and the the traditional kind of Oscar-y movie like adult dramas. Um, even you know comedies, rom-coms—they're all kind of disappearing, and so you have a, a very bifurcated industry between these big tentpole franchise movies and kind of little indie movies like *Tar* and *After Sun*, which are wonderful, but they're not—they're um, not reaching a mainstream audience in the way that you know thirty years ago something like *Goodwill Hunting* might or *The English Patient*. Um, and so I, th- I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what movies even are now. Um, a lot of a lot of those genres have shifted to to streaming television. People don't know necessarily how to make money off of streaming. The the writers may strike because of this because no one knows how to like actually cr- you know trickle down the wealth that that comes from the popularity of streaming. Um, it's all a big mess, and I think mm-hmm. that this year's Oscars kind of reflect that. You have ten uh, Oscar. The 10 nominees for Best Picture, they include Avatar and Top Gun Maverick, these big hits. And then they also include these little movies like Triangle of Sadness and Women Talking. And I think part of the reason that Everything Everywhere All at Once has broken out as such a frontrunner is that it kind of defies all those rules. It's this weird, indie, crazy movie that is not part of a franchise, and yet it's a gigantic sci-fi spectacle. And it's an indie movie, but it's made over $100 million and people absolutely love it and have gone to see it in the theater. So I think in a way it's like the unicorn that um, makes the industry believe that maybe some of these problems can be overcome. Yeah, well, we we will find out a little bit more when uh, next Sunday rolls around, but hopefully that
2: gives some uh, folks out there something to watch for as they uh, see if their picks make it to the top of the list to round things out right there though we've been speaking with michael shulman staff writer at the new yorker also the author of the new book oscar wars a history of hollywood in gold sweat and tears michael shulman thanks so much thank you for having me and thank you all for listening for kcbs and in depth i'm keith Menconi. stay safe be well we'll talk again next week